John's Gospel, chapter 2, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we'll finish this chapter this evening and then look at maybe getting into chapter 3 and taking it a chapter at a time. Um, a heavy emphasis upon maybe we try. But we pick things up in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so the Jews answered, and they said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify uh, of man, for uh, he knew what was in man. So there's something that happens here in this event in Jesus' ministry, and he uh, repeats this uh, very same event early in his ministry as we see it here in John chapter 2, and then toward the end of his ministry uh, as well. And so whatever this is about, he wants this point to be driven home, uh, coming and going in his public ministry. Nowhere that I can at least see in the Gospels or think of, nowhere approaches uh, the kind of uh, incense and, uh, in Jesus as he responds to whatever it is that's going on the scene. Whatever is happening here is an affront to him. The only thing that I can think of that is comparable to this is when he denounces the Pharisees with very, very strong words in Matthew chapter 23. But here you have the strong words and then you have these kind of actions. And what it makes me realize when I look at this is whatever incenses him here, whatever is an affront to him here, I don't want to be guilty of it, and so it immediately has my interest in terms of understanding what in the world is, is going on. We're told that the event occurred at the time of the Passover in verse 13. The Passover was one of the three great uh, Jewish feasts of their religious uh, calendar, along with the Feast of Pentecost and along with the Feast uh, of Tabernacles. The Feast of Passover represented a time for the Jewish people to celebrate God's deliverance of them from their bondage in Egypt, the Exodus. 
when God had uh, declared to the children of Israel and the tenth plague that was required to secure the, ch- the release of the children of Israel from Pharaoh, and God said, you're to take a lamb, take the blood of that lamb, apply it to the doorposts and the lentils uh, of the house, and when the avenging angel passes over Egypt, when he sees the blood, he will pass over his judgment in, in that coming to that house. And so you have uh, thus the, the term Passover for uh, the commemoration uh, of the event. And the means of salvation, a physical salvation for the children of Israel in being freed from uh, the death of the firstborn related to their families, but also to be freed from the physical bondage uh, of, of Egypt uh, and, and here they are celebrating that, that physical um, uh, salvation that, that God has accomplished God's way uh, through the sign of the cross, all of, a, uh, all of it a picture of when Jesus would come into the world, die upon the cross to free us from the greater bondage, uh, not of government or not of countries or not uh, uh, of these kind of things, but from the greater uh, bondage of, uh, of sin. And so uh, you can imagine as these, uh, these uh, uh, pilgrims are coming, Jewish pilgrims coming now to celebrate this great event in, in their history uh, uh, that God had had accomplished and how excited they would be to praise and to worship the Lord uh, for that great deliverance. Now, according to the law of Moses, the uh, attendance at this feast in Jerusalem was mandatory for all Jews um, in the land uh, of Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, verse 16. And it's very important to understand that, to understand what it is happening here. It was mandatory for all men to come at all three of these feasts, including this feast, uh, on an annual basis uh, in in, uh, Jerusalem. Because it is one of the things that these greedy uh, religious leaders are going to take advantage of in, in gaining wealth for themselves. They were ripping people off financially, and uh, you would think that people would have just said, that's it, I'm not going to the temple, I'm not going to go and engage in uh, uh, honoring those sacrifices and even those great events. I just can't go there and be ripped off by these people, not one more time. But that's not an option according to the law of Moses, that they had. They had to come and worship the Lord the way that he had determined uh, in, in his word. And the Jewish religious leaders knew that, and so they've got a captive audience. They have uh, God's people trapped as it relates uh, to this kind of uh, scam and scheme that they were uh, putting uh, over uh, on them. And so uh, the... Uh, the using the law of Moses to uh, corner them in this way. In addition to the men coming, of course, they would oftentimes bring their wives, bring their children. We see that in the, ch- in the uh, childhood uh, account of Jesus as he goes to uh, Jerusalem as a, probably a 13-year-old, somewhere right in there. And uh, with his family, he stays behind and, and creates a little bit of worry for his mom and for his dad. 
And uh, so they would come, and Jews would come from all around the world to celebrate uh, this Jewish feast of, of Passover. It is uh, conservatively estimated that over one million pilgrims would come into Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Uh, and then uh, some estimates go as high as uh, two and a half million pilgrims from all over Israel, pilgrims, Jews from uh, all over uh, the world. And so the city, all of the outlying areas would just be a mass of humanity come together to worship the Lord and to thank Him for uh, His work in their, in their past. The Temple Mount area is about 17 acres, so a little bit larger than the property that the, the, the church is on. And, and uh, it included the, the temple itself located there, and then uh, the, uh, the area for the priests, and then there were also uh, the court of the, the men, then further out the court of the women, and then the furthest out from the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles could not, the women, the men could not go into the court of the priests, the women could not go into the court of, of the men, and the Gentiles could not leave their court at all and move into the court uh, even of, of the women. And so there was this, de this designation related to the courts associated with, uh, with the temple. And uh, so you have all of these people coming together. All of the area of the temple is just slammed and jammed with people and uh, all into the surrounding area. And they've come from all over the world to joyfully offer a sacrifice to God as the law required and then also to offer to God the half shekel that was required of all Jewish men over the age of 20 for the purpose of maintaining the temple. And so Jesus being a Jewish man, he came to fulfill the law of Moses, so Jesus attended the Passover feast in, in Jerusalem. To me, the, the three big words here found in, in verse 14 of the passage are in the temple. If these, if these religious leaders had pulled this, uh, this stunt anywhere else than here, uh, it wouldn't have drawn this kind of ire uh, from Jesus. But they do this thing uh, in the temple. The Jewish temple was the single most important building associated with the Jewish religion. It represented the presence of God, the closest they could get to God on the, the, the face uh, of, of the earth. It represented God's dwelling place uh, with them. And as the holiest place in Judaism, it was to be completely set aside to God. It was to be completely about Him. It was not to be profaned in any way. And the Old Testament talks a lot about uh, things being profaned. And when we think about profane today, we think of it in terms of profanity, that somebody curses or somebody swears. But it's not how the, the Bible uses the term uh, profane. It, 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 is, it carries the meaning of being common. It carries the meaning of something that is unholy or undevoted to God. And everything outside of the threshold, the doorway 
of that temple that entered into the Holy of Holies and then into the Holy of Holies. From the outside to the doorway that entered into the temple, everything outside of that temple was considered profane. It was considered to be common. Everything in the temple, everything about the temple was to be considered uh, absolutely uh, holy. And here they are profaning uh, the, the, the temple and, uh, and uh, making it common, making it like everything else uh, in the world. And it's important to understand that, that, pro, that to be something to be profane in the eyes of God doesn't mean that it's superlatively wicked. It means that something that ought to be holy has become exactly like everything else in the world. And that's what the Jewish religious leaders had done to uh, the temple at the time uh, of, of Jesus. On the temple grounds, uh, he found, we're told, those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the law of Moses. Again, it did require that when you came to the temple during this feast, that you would bring an offering to God that would then be sacrificed uh, to him, an animal sacrifice to the Lord from a, a person's flock or from their herd, either on the part of an individual or a single animal related to the family that had come to worship the Lord. And so those animals would then be brought to the temple. The priest would inspect them to make sure that they were without spot and without uh, blemish. And then the priest would offer that animal to the Lord on behalf of, of the worshiper. It, it appears that over a period of time that someone in the area of Jerusalem thought it would be nice to provide animals to uh, pilgrims that are coming from so far away in the land or even from other countries so they don't have to bring that lamb uh, from Nazareth or from the north or from the south or from another country to bring it so far to then present it before the priest, have it inspected and then offer it uh, to the Lord. Well, so far so good it's a, in, in terms of that. But it wasn't long before this goodwill gesture became uh, very popular as animals then would be offered there in the city of Jerusalem itself. And then it wouldn't have been long before uh, having those animals available for purchase in Jerusalem would have become a very, very thriving uh, in industry. And then in order to make things even more convenient people, for people, why not offer the animals closer to the temple? And then ultimately, why not offer those animals right in the area of the temple it, uh, itself? But of course, to offer animals in the area of the temple would require the, the blessing and the permission uh, of the religious leaders. And, and then the religious leaders, they come to realize that people are getting rich off of this. And why shouldn't we get a cut uh, of this action? And so they allow the selling of the animals on the temple grounds for a cut of the profit. And then soon, why not discourage anyone from bringing any animal uh, to the temple from home uh, at all? Let's just have religious leaders inspect the animals that are brought from home uh, to, for some spot or blemish, disqualify them, force them to buy at an exorbitant price the animals that are sold there uh, at, at the temple and, and from the vendors. 
and then, and then uh, beyond that, then we'll make the vendor's animals pre-approved by the Jewish religious leaders uh, for sacrifice. And then when there's no competition uh, from animals being brought from home, now you have a monopoly on the sacrifice business and you can charge whatever price you want for those animals. And ultimately, the whole business was taken over uh, by the high priest and, and with millions of pilgrims coming every year to these three feasts to say nothing of coming uh, week in and week out, day in and day out, all, all through the year, uh, and millions of dollars went into his family's personal uh, fortune until what had begun as a convenience uh, turned into a religious theft. And until the temple then became profane, it became just like everything else in the world, uh, all about uh, making uh, money. And you notice there in verse 14 the mention of doves. And that's a, especially grieving because doves were the offering that God allowed uh, the very uh, the, uh, poorest people that couldn't afford a lamb to offer a dove uh, to him. So nobody was beyond this financial uh, scam that they were putting over people. Just think about the hardness uh, of heart that would be involved uh, that, you, that you wouldn't even accept a dove that the poorest of people uh, brought and you wouldn't uh, sell it to them for the cost of, of the dove itself. I mean, there, nobody was beyond the reach of their uh, greed. I mean, you think about their hearts, how far their hearts were uh, from the Lord, even though they claimed to represent Him. Now, on the temple grounds, there were also money changers in verse 14. And if you're going to circle a second phrase uh, in the passage, I would say, uh, in the temple is the first, and then doing business is the second. And, and the worship of the temple had at the temple had become a business. It was about making money, again, like everything else in the world. And if you put those two phrases together in verse 14, you have a clear sense of what incensed Jesus doing business in the temple. And, and it's important to real, uh, realize for many, many reasons, but for the overwhelming majority of years that I have been a, a pastor, certainly for the last 30 years or so, there has been immense pressure placed upon Christian churches, evangelical churches, all Christian churches actually, uh, great, great pressure upon churches to look to businesses as the model for building a successful church. And it's a great danger. A church is not a business. It has entirely different priorities, entirely different uh, aims. And, and the end doesn't justify the means. The church is not to operate like a business. And here you have this situation where it is operating as a business. According to the law of Moses, every Jewish male 
age 20 years or older, had to offer a half shekel, a certain amount of money, to the Lord every year. The money was used to maintain the temple. As you might imagine, you, uh, everything that gets built begins to decay the moment you stop the construction. And so there has to be maintenance of the buildings. Also, there were offerings that were made by the priests on behalf of the people as a whole on a daily basis. Somehow those had to be paid for. And that's what this half shekel uh, was used for to support the work um, at, at the, uh, the temple. And the Lord supplied it through that offering. Well, you'd have many, many Jews who would come to Jerusalem from all around the world. And uh, like all travelers today across the borders of countries, uh, you are going to have uh, different currencies. And so some would come to Jerusalem with Roman currency. Some would, would come with Egyptian uh, currency. Some would come uh, with Greek uh, currency. And they would need to exchange it into the Jewish currency of the shekel to offer it at the temple. The temple would not receive a Gentile uh, currency. And, uh, and, and so uh, there was uh, this exchange place made, these tables that were made for the exchange of, of uh, Gentile currency into Jewish currency for the paying of the half uh, shekel. And so they were there to exchange the money for you. Now, I think that perhaps the service of the money changers probably began as a convenience to uh, the, the pilgrims as well, initially located outside in the city, and, and then again, why not make it something that's right here on the Temple Mount and uh, area, and then right here where the animals are, and they just have one stop for, uh, one stop uh, in, uh, for shopping and taking care of all of their business related uh, to all of this, and uh, the money changes allowed to on the temple grounds uh, by the Jewish religious leaders again, uh, doubtless for a cut. And then in each step of the progression, they raise the exchange rate until historians tell us that by the time of Jesus, they charged half the value of a shekel to exchange it. 50% fee for the exchange of money. That's like you and I going to another country asking for $100 in their currency, and it cost me $50 to do that. I mean, that is, that is just an awful, awful ripoff that w was uh, going on. I mean, you would just be ashamed to, to play any part uh, in that. In, 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 for instance, what the Bible talks about being careful to deal with the foreigner and the stranger. Don't take advantage of them. How much worse to take advantage of people coming to the temple out of a love for God, a desire to worship God, and then you gouge them uh, in that, that way. And so people, obviously, they're going to feel very much ripped off. And I think that if you've traveled at all, you realize that uh, unless you do a little bit of shopping related to where can I get the best rate for uh, the exchange of American dollars and whatever currency of the country 
that, that you're in, it, it is at the point of exchanging currency that you're probably the most vulnerable to be ripped off uh, within, within that, that, uh, that country that you're visiting. And here they are, uh, they, uh, they uh, took advantage and, and got a cut of this whole action that was going on as well. In fact, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, these booths were actually owned by the family of the high priest. After a while, they didn't take, they didn't take a cut of it. They didn't take the markup. They just took all, all, all of it. And it didn't matter if you were rich or you were poor, they did this to everyone. Now, all of this would have been terrible enough and shameful enough if one pagan, and I use the term affectionately, if one pagan, one human being did this kind of thing to another human being uh, belonging to the Elks Club, or Kiwanis, or whatever it might be. A person would be ashamed to treat their fellow man in that, that kind of a way. But here you have all of this being done with the endorsement of the religious leaders in the name of religion, and really in the name of the Lord. There is no thief in the world who is so despicable as the thief who hides behind God as a part of their stealing from people and stealing from uh, God's people. And so the temple just became all about uh, making money at the expense of the common people. They just wanted to come and worship the Lord, and, and these religious leaders just couldn't uh, help themselves, so to speak, at taking advantage of this hunger for God, this devotion for God, this desire to worship God in this way. Uh, one commentator, very reputable commentator, states that it has been estimated that Caiaphas, who was the high priest overseeing all of this at that, at that time, uh, that he made over $3 million a year from these practices uh, alone. And I don't know what that would turn into in terms of, of dollar amounts uh, uh, today. So this horrible misrepresentation uh, of God and a, the, the absolute last thing that God wanted people to experience when they came to worship Him, and, and the last thing that they wa He wanted them to be thinking about when they would come and, and worship Him. Until, of course, you might imagine the common person just despised the whole thing. And just imagine the terrible taste this would leave in your mouth. And then here comes the Passover feast, time to go to Jerusalem again. And instead of being excited about going there and, and worshiping the Lord with all of the pilgrims, there would be that thing that would enter your mind immediately, but they're going to they're gonna rip me off when I go there, and, and that's going to be part of my worship experience. That's going to be a distraction to my uh, worship uh, of the Lord. I'm going to get fleeced again by these men that are claiming to represent God. Now, you notice what Jesus did here in the light of all of this in verse 15 is he made a whip of cords and he drove out all of the merchants, the money changers, uh, off of the temple grounds, including driving off their sheep and also their oxen. He tipped over the tables. He poured out the money uh, the, uh, on the money changers' uh, tables and just came in and he cleaned house. 
And so when Jesus sees this, this is such an affront to him uh, that when he, he doesn't come up uh, to uh, the priests that are in, in, engaged in all of these kind of things and then speak to them and say, you know, I'd like to maybe have a word with you a little bit about how maybe this isn't the best way to represent God in terms of the responsibility that you've been given. And, but only if you'll just kind of uh, give some thought to what I might say here. And if what I would say about, uh, the, you know, the, the minor wrong that you're doing here would be offensive in any way, then just forget I said anything. The way that we do, we fall all over ourselves to not say something or do anything with any kind of clarity. Now, he, he makes it unmistakably clear he goes in and he takes care of this. And then important to realize that all of this is a great an affront to Jesus today as ever it was 2,000 years ago. Because the Bible teaches that he's the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. And so what he does is he cleans house. And this is very, very significant that he does it during the time, both times, of the Feast of the Passover. You had the Feast of the Passover. It was a single day in the Jewish religious calendar. But attached to the Feast of Passover were uh, six days or a week that followed the, the single day, and that feast that followed was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But because they abutted one another, uh, both feasts kind of became known as the Passover. And, and so what was in, in, involved in all of that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, uh, no Jewish family would eat anything that uh, was leavened during the week, and every Jewish home would be cleansed of all yeast, cleansed of all leaven, which is a picture of sin uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, it would all be taken out of their homes. And here you have the Feast of Passover speaking of their miraculous redemption from Egypt. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread right on the tail of it speaking of their responsibility to leave, live holy lives as a result of that redemption. And the whole thing reinforced the idea is that yes, God has miraculously saved you as a people, but now having been saved, you have a responsibility to live a holy life. Of course, this applies to our salvation uh, as well. But it wasn't just about yeast or leaven. Once a year, they would go through their entire house. They would go through their entire lives. They would clean house uh, to get rid of anything, any sin within their life. It was an annual uh, time to just stop and say, what has entered this house? What has entered into this place? that is clearly forbidden by the Word of God and prohibited by the Word of God. And now this is the time where we do an assessment of everything and anything that represents leaven, it is taken out of, out of our homes and out of our lives as something that doesn't uh, belong there. And that kind of a moral or spiritual house cleaning is uh, always something that is good to have take place. Now, at the forefront of the minds of the people at this time, time was just this thing. They have cleansed their homes uh, of leaven 
in anticipation of the Feast of Passover and the Feast of of Unleavened Bread. Now Jesus does the same thing in His Father's house, in the temple. And what they had already done in their homes, uh, He cleansed the temple now of all that was leaven, all that was sinful, all that was uh, of the world and didn't belong there. And that's why He cleanses uh, the temple in a a fulfillment, not only uh, as He would later fulfill the feast of Passover, but the feast also of unleavened bread. Now you notice what Jesus said in verse 16. He said, take these things away do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And so what the temple should have been about, but wasn't about, Jesus said, this is my father's house. The whole reason this temple has been entrusted to you as Jewish people uh, is that in order that there would be a father's house on the face uh, of the earth, a place to meet with God, a place to fellowship, a place to know Him uh, as uh, uh, our, our Heavenly Father. And instead, He said, you've made it a house of merchandise. You've made it more about making money than, uh, than about meeting uh, with, with God. And so, again, just like the world, same goal as the world uh, to make money. And Jesus was outraged that they had turned uh, a a place intended to honor God and worship God into a market. So it doesn't mean that a church can't sell things. It doesn't mean that a church can't have a bookstore, for instance. And... uh, but what should be in cell Bibles and Christian literature and that kind of thing. But what is sold there should never be sold at a price that gouges people in any way. It should be sold as close to cost as it possibly uh, can be uh, to people. So that's not the kind of thing that he, he is talking about uh, here. In Mark's account, uh, uh, when Jesus does this later in his ministry, the cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry, we're told that Jesus said, is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The temple was there as a place for all nations to come together and to pray to uh, God, and, uh, and that's what it was, was to be about. Not just for the Jews, all nations speaks of the Gentiles as well. Well, you know where the animals were stored for sale, and you know where the money changers had their booths, in the court of the Gentiles. And the court that was furthest away uh, from the temple itself, and now... When the Gentiles, one of the great reasons that God called the Jewish people to be the Jewish people so that God could bless their lives and create kind of a jealousy and a longing in the heart of Gentiles to know a God who is that good to His people. Now with all of this nonsense going on in the court of the Gentiles, there's no room for Gentiles. And so it speaks about the religious leaders They had completely lost any kind of a concern for the lost. They had lost any kind of a sense that this was about uh, them as a people bringing 
uh, Gentiles into contact uh, uh, with, with the God of the Bible, the God that they claim to uh, represent. And so all of it uh, taken uh, over by these kind of, of things and, and a, a reflection uh, of their, their heart. And so Jesus looks at all of this and he drives out these religious merchants to make room for the God seeker among the Gentiles. So they can come as close as they can come to the temple, as close as they can come to God under that old, old covenant, but that the Gentile world would see that they are a priority of God as well, that He loves them as well. He wants to save them uh, as, as well. And here they have absolutely no, no uh, concern for the reputation of God in this, in, in this regard, and they had made it a den of thieves. What is a den of thieves? A den of thieves is the place, the den, that thieves go back to to divide the spoil, to divide the theft between one another. God sees everything. And so what he sees day in and day out, uh, feast in and feast out, is the religious leaders taking all of this loot into some kind of a place and then dividing it up. And as however they might have been highly esteemed by the people or esteemed in their own eyes. God looks at it and he says, this is just a den of thieves that is operating uh, this temple of, of God's. And, and, uh, and that was his assessment of them. And of course, as I said, the greatest, worst thief of all is the religious thief hiding behind God in order to uh, rip people off. Now, all of this and everything that was being done in the Lord's name at that time, of course, a terrible misrepresentation uh, of God. And it is important for people to realize that um, I don't uh, see uh, much Christian television these days, so I'm not very uh, current on it, but I do remember a time and uh, hopefully it's changed a little bit, but the televangelists, I mean, you could not put a show on uh, except they were sending these cloths and, and water from the Jordan and all these kind of things to separate people from their money and, uh, and here, give your, you know, final small amount of money and, uh, uh, to the servant of the Lord and then God will pour out upon you and all of this, this uh, kind of, uh, of thing that was, uh, that, was, that was going on. And, and people see that. And, you know, and one of the things, I've been a Christian for a long time now, and one of the things I have to be careful of, uh, on both extremes, but one of the things I have to be careful of is I'm used to this stuff now. So I just roll my eyes. I go on about my business. I can't rant and rave over, uh, over all of it, and I, don't, I can't get up on a, a pedestal and denounce it every week or something like that. And so we just kind of get used to the fact that that it's, uh, it's going on. And so I, I do get used to it. And, uh, and then just go on uh, uh, about my uh, business. But people are watching those shows. And unsaved people are watching those shows. And coming to a conclusion about Christianity and about the God of Christianity and when at that time so many shows were in that vein designed to perpetuate themselves and to separate people from their money, 
what kind of an attitude would they develop toward, uh, toward the, lo- the Lord, toward the God of the Bible? Who would want to know anything about Him? If these are the kind of people I'm going to come under and be associated with, uh, these oily people, uh, by becoming a Christian. And a lot of damage gets done by that, it, 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 that kind of thing. And it's important to realize only Jesus is the true and faithful witness of God. You must make your decision on what you do uh, uh, with Christianity based upon Him and based upon His life and His teaching and not how He is misrepresented by uh, his, His people. We all misrepresent Him, hopefully not deliberately as they were doing, but he, he is the one you want to look to. You notice that his anger was not a carnal or sinful uh, anger, verse 17, but it, it, it came out of a zeal for God. And as the disciples are watching this uh, go on, they're reminded of uh, Psalm uh, 69, verse 9, filled their mind, and, uh, and and, uh, and that this was a fulfillment of that prophecy uh, concerning the Messiah. So, when you get angry at anything, you can't use this passage as a reason to uh, put a cord together and start clearing, uh, clearing the building. There is, there is a, a verse in the Bible that does say, be angry. You say, cool, where is that? I want to I commit that to memory. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, the, the verse says, be angry and sin not. So there is an anger that is not sin. There is an anger that is a righteous anger. And the anger that we want to be careful of is an anger that I feel because of how some action has impacted me. Once me is involved, now my anger can get carnal. But when my anger uh, comes out of being upset over how people are being treated and how God is being represented as Jesus' anger was here, now you have a pretty good chance that it is a righteous anger. And there is a place for righteous anger in, in the body uh, of Christ and in our lives as, as Christians. The Jews in verse 18, they asked him the question, what sign uh, do you show us since you do these things? You notice they didn't challenge the rightness of his actions. That's not the question that they uh, posed to him. They challenge him uh, on what authority uh, uh, have you done this particular uh, thing. Who gave you permission to do what he had just done? And of course, it, it was silly of them to ask for a sign uh, or a miracle to prove that God was behind this action of Jesus. Anybody who, who was witnessing it, that had a holy bone in their body, could see that that was a righteous thing uh, to do. But what Jesus did was fully supported by Scripture. Again, Psalm 69, verse 9, which is mentioned in the passage, because zeal for your house has eaten uh, me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's also a near fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And here's the prophecy concerning Messiah. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That is Messiah. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And Jesus will do that in an ultimate and final way in his second coming, but he fulfilled it on a near fulfillment in this event. Jesus' response is there in in verses 19 to uh, 21. In uh, verse 19, he gave them the sign uh, of his uh, authority and uh, a sign not only of his authority to cleanse the temple, but to do whatever he would want to do in order to judge their misrepresentation of God. And his sign he gave them was the sign of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, testifying to his authority as the Messiah and and as the Son of God. Well, they're confused in verse uh, 20. They don't understand what it is that he's talking uh, about here. Destroy this temple in three days, I will uh, raise it up. They had been building Herod's temple for 46 years by the time they have this conversation uh, with, with Jesus, and, and with a labor force of 18,000 people. They would continue to build Herod's temple for another 20 years. It would only be completed two years before it ended up being destroyed by the Romans in 70 uh, A.D., And John gives us the understanding of what Jesus was communicating, not about a physical temple, but about the temple of his body, and uh, that he was speaking of his death upon the cross at their hands, of his resurrection three days later. In other words, they had destroyed this temple as a pure place to come and to meet with God and to pray to God because of their greed and their their covetousness and their lack of a love for God. But now Jesus speaks of the temple of His body that they will attempt to destroy uh, very, very uh, at the end of His public ministry, and they would attempt to destroy His body for the same reasons. Out of their greed, out of their covetousness, out of their uh, lack of a love for God. But this time, Jesus says, you're not going to be successful. And that death, burial, and resurrection would give birth to a new temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit that exists uh, today, made up of living stones, living stones being us individually as Christians in this temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone to Jesus, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so he is saying, you will never be able to do to the temple of the Holy Spirit that will come into existence by virtue of my death, burial, and resurrection, what you have done 
uh, to this, uh, this temple. Well, the close here, the epilogue in, in verses 22 through uh, 25, following Jesus' resurrection, the disciples uh, remembered these words, and it was an encouragement uh, to their faith. Verse 23, uh, in Jerusalem during this feast of, of Passover, many came to believe in Jesus a, 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 as Messiah and as Savior. They did so as a result of the signs that He did. It, 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 it can be confusing here in verses 23, 24, and 25. They believed in Him, but He doesn't commit Himself to uh, them. So it appears that there was a problem with the quality of their faith. They believed in Him the, uh, on the basis uh, supremely of the miracles. That was the foundation for their faith. Rather than the prophetic Scriptures that speak of Jesus as uh, the Messiah. So a faith based solely upon miracles is not a, a faith that is strong as a faith that is based upon the Scriptures. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so their faith was not a, a well-founded faith being f- founded uh, uh, solely in, in the, uh, the miracles. And Jesus' response to this in verse 24 is He did not commit Himself to them because He knew uh, all men. And it appears that they had a superficial faith and excited there for the moment, but Jesus knew that it, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hold up. And when it says that Jesus, that, that He had no need that anyone would testify from uh, uh, of him from among men, for he knew what was in men. The idea is, is that who and what Jesus is, uh, the truthfulness of what he taught, uh, is, is never dependent upon uh, how many people believe it to be true or not. And what we do with Jesus is never a reflection upon him negative reflection at all. Uh, What we do with Jesus is supremely a reflection upon our own hearts. And so Jesus uh, wasn't comfortable fully with the kind of faith that was being expressed to Him on the basis solely of miracles here. But then when you get into chapter 3, we have the kind of faith that Jesus does commit Himself to. And we'll look to study that um, next time. And so this teaches any local church and any leaders in a church that the church is supposed to be about God. And it is supposed to be a place, not to be a place where um, it, it is a place that is there to just simply facilitate the worship of God. To use every means that it has uh, biblically to point people to God and help people grow in their relationship with God and to come to know Him better, to be a blessing to people so people don't cringe at the thought uh, of going to church and what are they going to do to me uh, this week. And a church also to be a a church that has a sense uh, of the lost, that there's still a lost world out there that is many of whom are are still looking for God. They haven't maybe had the the opportunities we've had to be exposed to Him in the course of, uh, of their lifetimes and for there to be room for them as well, for their, them to be taken into account in, in what it is that, uh, that goes on there. This, uh, 
all of this, as we look at this, we could just look at it and say, yeah, you know, those churches, those televangelists, and those Jewish religious leaders, and those Pharisees, and those Sadducees, I'm glad he set them in their place. And just to confine the application uh, to that particular group of people. But it has an individual application, too, for each of us in the room. Because, again, we need to realize that as individual Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And then the tremendous responsibility that is associated with the privilege of being a part of the temple of the Holy Spirit Paul brings out in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so the Old Testament uh, uh, temple, it represented the presence of God. It was a place where man could meet with God. It was a place that communicated to the entire world God's desire to have a relationship with man. It communicated the holiness of God. It was a place to come and learn about God. It was a place to come into contact with God's uh, glory. It was a a place to come into contact with His power. And now because the Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, He now uses us to accomplish those very same things in the world around us. But because we're a living temple, we're not uh, located in just one place on the face of the planet, but we are a temple that is scattered all around the world as, as living stones. People don't have to fly halfway around the world to come into contact with the temple of God. All they need to do is to come into contact with a Christian in order to come into contact with the presence of God, in order to meet with God, in order to learn of His desire to have a relationship with them, in order to learn about His holiness and His nature, to learn about His wisdom and His ways, to experience His power and His glory. And all of those things happen through us as Christians today. So again, very easy to just look at it and say, uh, this passage is about televangelists that most of us have seen and say, it doesn't have anything to do with me individually. But it challenges us as to whether our lives as Christians properly represent God before the world. And what does our life communicate about God to the world? And I'm not trying to plow deep here or lay the lash in any any kind of way. But that's what the passage communicates. For me, Damien Kyle, to stop and assess my life, assess what comes out of my mouth, the life that I live. People are coming to conclusions about the God that I have identified myself with by listening to what I say and watching the life that I live. And is my life representing God in a proper way in that regard? Or do I even think of my life as a Christian any more 
in that regard. I am a place for people to come into contact with God every day of my life as a Christian and then to assess my life for how close my life is to what it ought to be or as it is far away from what it ought to be as ever this temple under the Sadducees and Pharisees were. And it never does me any harm to just stop and be reminded of that and for me to reassess my life in that way. I want to make a difference in this world. I want people to come to know the Lord. I want them to see His beauty. I want Him to see them to see His grace in my life. I want them to hear His wisdom coming uh, out of my mouth. I want all of those things to, to happen through my life. And so this makes us stop and just to think about the little stone that I am in this temple of the Holy Spirit and then in the little environment that God has placed each of us in do I even think about my life in that environment in, in, that, in, in that way anymore? And then to reassess what is it that people are seeing? And then what legitimately, what conclusions could they come to, uh, wrong conclusions about God, by virtue of the fact that I've slipped down from both the privilege and the responsibility of that calling upon our lives. And if this, does, if this doesn't touch any of our lives tonight, I'm fine with that. I, I just deliver the message. But, but if it does, and we look and we say, man, this is why everywhere I go, I don't let anybody know that I'm a Christian because I'm afraid of the conclusions they'll come to God about God based upon the way that I talk and conduct myself. That doesn't work. We're not allowed to do that. But instead, to uh, be a proper representative of the Lord and a contact with the kingdom of God that God wants us uh, to be. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward at this time, and I'm going to ask them just to lead us in one, one worship song before we close to give us just a chance, a couple of minutes here, to uh, just allow that that question to search our life for the passage to be an encouragement to us. Yeah, you're doing great. And, I re- and the Lord to say, I really love what people are coming into contact with. You're representing me wonderfully in, in, at home and, and at work and at school and in your neighborhood and all of that. Or if there's something now that we, that we need to turn from and repent of and in the form of an exhortation to allow, allow that to do its good work in our lives as well.